0: Welcome everyone. Uh, Greetings. Uh, Welcome to our third panel. Excellent. Potpourri. Uh, That was actually my favorite Jeopardy category. So I'm very much looking forward to this. I'll get started by just uh, restating the ground rules. Uh, I'll be introducing each speaker in turn. After our panelists have spoken, we'll get straight to audience questions. Um, I remind audience members that you can submit questions both through the Zoom comment feature, but also through uh, various social media, be it uh, Facebook or Twitter. Um, and without, with, uh, with that and without further ado, we will get straight to business. Um, our first speaker today is Keith Whittington. Um, Professor Whittington is the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University. He is the author of 13 books on constitutional subjects. So he's well qualified to speak today. Um, I was amazed to learn that he is currently working on two books, he's currently completing two books, Constitutional Crises, Real and Imagined, and The Idea of Democracy in America. Um, that blows my mind. I can barely cook two Pop-Tarts in the morning and, and Keith is, is, is writing two books. Um, so, he will be presenting on the vexing problem of faithless electors, a, a very uh, topical subject. So, with uh, please, Keith. So, thank
1: you very much. Uh, so, my uh, piece for the Supreme Court uh, uh, review was to focus on the faithless electors uh, case that the court heard uh, this past term. Um, as you may recall, um, in the 2016 um, elections um, a organized movement was launched uh, which eventually took the label of the Hamilton electors uh, Which was uh, encouraging uh, presidential electors uh, not to cast their ballots uh, For the presidential candidates to which they were pledged um, Particularly the goal was to convince uh, republican uh, Trump pledged uh, presidential electors not to cast their ballots for uh, donald trump uh, But instead to cast their ballots for somebody else Um, either with a goal of shifting the election uh, victory uh, to Hillary Clinton um, or shifting it um, away from a simple majority such that the election would be thrown into uh, the House of Representatives. Um, This effort was obviously uh, unsuccessful. Uh, Donald Trump uh, nonetheless retained uh, most, although not quite all, um, of his uh, presidential electors and did retain uh, the necessary majority in the Electoral College uh, to be uh, inaugurated. Um, as President of the United States. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, there was um, a quite dramatic number of presidential electors who did um, either successfully or attempt uh, to cast their ballots for someone other than the person that they were originally pledged to, uh, mostly Hillary Clinton um, electors who were pledged to vote for Hillary Clinton who chose to vote uh, for somebody else. Um, States have um, over the course of the 20th century, for the most part, um, tried to adopt um, various kinds of legislative mechanisms to discourage uh, these kinds of what were called faithless electors, uh, electors who break their pledge um, to vote for a specific candidate, but instead cast their ballots uh, for somebody else. Um, States have have adopted a variety of different mechanisms to do this, and two different mechanisms were deployed by states. Uh, during the 2016 presidential election that eventually gave rise to litigation that eventually reached uh, the US Supreme Court. Uh, One set of cases came out, uh, one one of the case, uh, one case of the two cases uh, the court heard came out of Colorado uh, involving um, Hamiltonian electors there. Um, In Colorado, um, the statutory mechanism that was in place um, at the time and then used uh, was one of removing um, presidential electors who refused to cast their ballot in a way that they had previously pledged and replacing them uh, with new um, presidential electors who would cast the ballot in the expected way. Um, The state of Washington um, had at the time a slightly different mechanism, that is they imposed civil fines um, on faithless electors. Um, Traditionally, these have been mostly symbolic um, uh, efforts by the states. The states haven't tried to actually uh, implement these in practice, but both Washington and Colorado did, as did some other states. Um, In 2016, Washington imposed a civil fine um, on some of its electors. Uh, Colorado did in fact replace Uh, one of its um, electors. Um, In both cases, those electors um, subsequently brought suit um, against um, uh, uh, those states, um, arguing that the state laws um, violated their rights as presidential electors to cast their ballots without um, constraint. this raises a, uh, actually, I think quite difficult um, uh, constitutional problem um, in some ways. It's a kind of constitutional problem that, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court has not spent much time uh, thinking about, as have uh, and other courts have not really spent much time uh, thinking about this all across American um, history. Um, and moreover, this is a problem that's largely orthogonal to most of the kinds of constitutional disputes that arise in the Supreme Court. And so as a consequence, uh, the justices were, justices were in the somewhat unusual situation um, of really being, being able to think fresh about this particular problem and not be as divided um, as they might normally be uh, by um, a pre existing set of constitutional concerns or a larger set of political concerns. What they did in this case was not going to affect a presidential election, unlike Bush v. Gore, um, uh, for um, example, but would have potential consequences. Uh, for future elections. Uh, The result was the justices were able to all agree um, on an outcome, um, in this case um, to uh, strike down, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, to uphold um, the uh, uh, laws that were in place um, in Colorado and in Washington and in a variety of other states that are designed to uh, restrict the legislatures, uh, the presidential electors. Um, There was nonetheless some disagreement among the justices as to how best to explain Um, uh, this result. Two of the justices uh, wrote a concurring opinion, the opinion itself was written by Justice Thomas, um, that provided a different explanation than what the majority offered uh, in an opinion uh, by uh, Justice uh, Kagan. Uh, Justice Kagan emphasized um, the notion um, that the uh, uh, pledge the electors took was part of the condition of the appointment um, of presidential electors and states had an authority uh, by determining the manner by which presidential electors are going to be selected. Um, to impose conditions on the electors, including this one, um, and uh, then punish electors if they uh, violate the conditions of their appointment. Um, Thomas took a different approach. Instead, his argument was not that you could find uh, such a power in the terms of the US Constitution itself. Uh, But instead, it was a reserve power of the states under which was recognized uh, by the 10th Amendment. There was nothing in the Constitution that prohibited states uh, from adopting uh, these kinds um, of sanctions. I think both kinds of arguments actually have some real trouble um, in uh, justifying themselves. Both run afoul, certainly, of how people anticipated um, that presidential electors would behave um, when the Constitution was created, and really uh, have some real difficulty being reconciled with the language by which the electoral college sets up, uh, which assumes the existence of presidential electors who appear, at least, um, to be relatively unconstrained in their ability to cast votes and and, uh, cast uh, ballots um, in general. Moreover, the court has now opened the door, I think, to a range of uh, potential problems that are going to arise uh, down the road. Um, On the one hand, I think they gave some support uh, for the effort to build uh, the possibility of a uh, national um, popular vote um, structure for the presidential electors. States, uh, I think, under this decision have uh, clearer authority, um, to, uh, require the presidential electors, um, support whoever wins the national popular vote rather than who supports, um, the statewide vote, and presumably now have more authority, um, to, uh, punish electors who do not adhere Uh, to the national popular vote or even replace electors who refuse to cast ballots consistent uh, with the national popular vote. Um, But it wouldn't surprise me if we don't wind up seeing a a future case in front of the U.S. Supreme Court if we get um, that kind of state compact in place um, that resolves that challenge more clearly. Uh, Moreover, it opens the door to the possibility of states adopting other kinds of uh, requirements on presidential electors. Uh, For example, it raises questions about can states uh, require that their presidential electors um, only support, uh, only cast ballots for um, presidential candidates who have publicly released their tax returns, um, uh, for example, um, or only uh, cast ballots for presidential candidates who are part of a, uh, a gender or racially diverse um, ticket, um, for example. And you can imagine a host of other possibility states uh, might uh, adopt under this new um, approach. Um, and they will raise challenges that ultimately I think the court will have to resolve to try to explain how those kinds of conditions relate to Um, these conditions. On the other hand, uh, the court avoided upsetting the current expectations about how uh, presidential elections work and the current expectations of faithless electors behaving uh, inappropriately. Um, the states have tried to discourage faceless electors. Um, and this uh, decision will allow states to continue to try and discourage faceless electors and didn't lend any uh, rhetorical or conceptual support um, uh, to future presidential electors who might want to behave faithfully. Um, and that's at least a win for the stability of the presidential system and the electoral system um, as, as we know it. Um, so let me end there so we make sure we have time for, to get to lots of questions.
0: Excellent. Great stuff. Thank you, Keith. Our next panelist is Robin Fretwell-Wilson. She is the Mildred Van Voorhees-Jones Chair in Law at the University of Illinois College of Law, where she specializes in family law and health law. Now, as with Professor Whittington, Professor Wilson has also written 13 books. I mean, that's amazing. Um, 26 books between the two of them. I also learned this in researching um, her bio that I thought was very cool. Uh, Professor Wilson, she is a co-investigator with the faculty at the Bar-Ilan University in Tel Aviv um, for a project to identify the impact of COVID-19 on children and families. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting nexus of law and science. Um, So without further ado, Professor Wilson will uh, will be presenting on the article, The Administrative State as a New Front in the Culture War, Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania, uh, an article she co-wrote with Tanner J. Bean. So please, Professor Wilson.
2: Thank you, Will. So the first real challenge is to see if I can share screen. Far We're in good shape. Okay, can you guys see that, Will? Okay, so you'll see a picture of me with the little sisters. I wanna start off by saying that I have great respect for them. They do amazing work in the world. And so bless them for what they're doing. Um, They've been dragged through a lot. I want to try to give some context for that. And then I want to argue that even though they rack up a 7-0 victory at the Supreme Court in their favor, that this is likely to be a lull in a larger culture war storm about the rights of women on one side to have the ability to control their reproductive access and the rights of religious objectors and moral objectors to step off. So um, we're all starting from the same place. There's a longer arc than just the Little Sisters. And this is beginning with the Affordable Care Act, at least in one account, it starts with the Affordable Care Act. So you'll see this paragraph, it's the paragraph in the Affordable Care Act, which was 440,000 words. This paragraph sparked the culture war uh, that gave us Hobby Lobby, that gave us Zubuk, and now has given us the Little Sisters of the Poor. It essentially vests in a sub-agency within HHS, the ability to decide what drugs women and any, any employees would be guaranteed as preventative care services under the Affordable Care Act. Now HRSA, this health research services agency, came back with 30 drugs. And four of them were stipulated, and you can see on the left, were stipulated to work on the implantation site. In fact, the FDA label said that, and I'll show you that in a second. Many religious people then rejected, um, you know, the idea that they would pay for this, and many people rejected the claim that religious people made that this was somehow causing them to end a life as opposed to simply being contraceptive or preventing a life. There are plenty of objectors who objected to both. I'll show you that in a second. So the basis for that technical scientific concern actually came from the FDA labels themselves. It was ultimately stipulated to in litigation. Many people reject the idea that some of these drugs work at the implantation site. There are peer-reviewed articles that talk about that, but for the moment we can bracket the scientific debate about how they work because the government conceded that when objections were raised. Then we had the set of religious objectors, many of whom filing under our friends, the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, um, claiming that they would exit the market, they would close facilities if they were forced in fact to pay for these abortifacients. We had Archbishop Laurie, uh, appealed to a longer tradition in the United States to leave moral and religious objectors to the side when it came to abortion, and he appealed to the morality of not forcing one person to violate their religious object- uh, objections in order to help another. And then President Obama took a first stab at a fix for these two competing tensions. Actually, I think he got it pretty much right. He said, we're gonna leave the religious nonprofits to the side of this duty, but we will make sure that women can still get these drugs with no wait, no hassle. And in particular, what he does is he he dragoons an insurer, the insurer that runs the federally facilitated exchange to pay for these drugs on behalf of the objecting nonprofits so that they were not required to pay. Now, well, just to make that very concrete, I use the iconic example of Notre Dame in one of my articles. Notre Dame has 16,000 plus employees. If Notre Dame objects to providing these kinds of drugs to its employees, the federally facilitated exchange insurer will pay for it. So Notre Dame's employees are not left without. Notre Dame doesn't pay. Everybody goes on, I guess, no harm, no foul. And then we all remember Hobby Lobby. Hobby Lobby was one of the first step overs to the Supreme Court on this. Um, Hobby Lobby did not qualify for the, Kind of Obama fix because they're not a religious nonprofit. They're a closely held corporation. I doubt that they would have accepted that fix willingly given the nature of their religious objection, but they didn't qualify. So they sue under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, as we'll all remember. And a decision comes back that there was a less restrictive means to making sure that the government gave access to women to preventative care services without forcing Hobby Lobby to do it, namely to extend the Obama fix for religious nonprofits to Hobby Lobby, and that ultimately happens at the end of the Obama administration. Then enter the Little Sisters of the Poor. They don't want the Obama fix or the thing that was being done for religious nonprofits, although they would qualify. They want nothing of the the outcome. Um, in other words, that women would have these drugs available to them, and so begins this round of litigation. We have a brief stopover in Zubik where the Supreme Court seems to at the end of the Obama administration say, really, we can't all get together and agree on how we can both take the little sisters out of the equation and make sure that women get these drugs. And for a period of time, it looked like that that might happen, but it proved too much in the waning hours of the Obama administration. And then I think to the surprise of many people, the whole thing flips to President Trump. And one of his earliest acts He says to the little sisters in the Rose Garden, don't worry about it. I've got your back. And his own departments um, uh, leave in place, interestingly, the mandate for everybody else, but then start carving big holes in it. One, a wholesale exemption for any religious employer. And then second, a new, completely new moral exemption. In other words, if you are morally objecting to these drugs because you see them as an abortifacient, you don't have to pay. Now, what is different about this than what President Obama did with his fix is that there is no provision made for women. In other words, these groups are now treated the way the Obama administration narrowly treated churches. The claim in the Obama administration was that anybody who worked for a church would share that church's views. So basically there was a no harm, no foul, a kind of a null set of people who went without because of it. That can't be true when you look at an employer that's as large as, let's say, a Notre Dame or a Hobby Lobby. There was going to be a mismatch between, for many employees, their employer's view. But in any event, that's where we land. And then that, of course, kicks up litigation by two states, which takes us to the Little Sisters decision issued this summer. But Pennsylvania and New Jersey cry foul. They say, wait, if you're not going to pay for this stuff, for these religious and moral objectors, then we will have to. And so that's our interest in complaining. And then I will just make uh, the recitation of the case very brief here. It all lands on these three little words out of 440000 in the ACA. And that is specifically as provided for by HRSA. So in a decision written by um, Justice Thomas, he says that authorized, those words authorized, um, Congress authorized HERSA and the departments to make this thing up from whole cloth, and it authorized them to punch big holes in it at the same time. Um, Kagan, interestingly, signs on, and I think she points away to the fact that this is likely to be an exceedingly short victory, but she says, okay, all true, but we haven't decided whether this is, in fact, arbitrary and capricially. The two states that litigated have already said that they would appeal um, or start again, and then presidential candidate Biden has said that he'll scrap both of those exemptions. Now I wanna talk about the substance of the paper since we're on the same page, I hope. Um, and I'm gonna make a couple of very brief points. One, there's a longer arc of respect for religious objectors, especially to facilitating or paying for abortion in America, stretching all the way back to 1973 in the church amendment in 1976 in the Hyde Amendment. And this is a, a disastrous, um, graphic, I realize, because it's super tiny, you can't read it, but let me make the point that way back here in 1973, with Roe v. Wade, almost at the same moment, Congress said we'll never make a person do an abortion against their religious or moral uh, objection. They also said if you want to do them, then you can't be penalized for not doing them either. It's a two-way street conscience protection. Comes a long hide in 1976 and during until now, um, query whether it will be in the next administration, saying we're not going to make Americans pay for abortion except in instances of rape, incest, life of the mother. And that endures. And then the decision picks up way back on the timeline when we get to Little Sisters of the Poor and what happens with the moral and wholesale exemptions that the Trump administration puts in. But what gets missed is that one of the pivotal things that gave us the ACA were pro-life Democrats like Bart Stupak actually negotiating for the fact that these sort of détente that we've achieved around abortion since 73 and 76 stay stable. And so there is a sense when the mandate comes back from the subagency within an agency and it has four drugs that their own labels say may act as abortifacients, sometimes for some women, that there was a breach of faith. There was a reason the religious right sort of jumped up. Now, on that point, you can think of the moral and wholesale exemptions as returning America back to where it was just before the ACA and just after. Second big point. Congress, um, you don't need this slide for that, but Congress could fix this. Congress could, in fact, write an exemption in for Little Sisters of the Poor and guarantee women access, much as President Obama has done. Now, I wouldn't hold your breath on that. I don't see that necessarily coming because I haven't seen a whole lot over there, but The point being that they could do this and take this problem away and stop forcing everybody to litigate over what should be a reasonable outcome. Women have access. We don't make people do it over their religious and moral objections. So that's Congress. Third, the administrative state. This is the sort of tagline of the piece, but we are now going to see culture war fights seep farther and farther down into the administrative state. Um, the effect, I think, will be to incentivize, in fact, culture war moves made by unaccountable actors. Now, we know from this graph, which I left out of my article, um, but from this graph, we know that political actors are being named to positions deeper and deeper inside of administrations. And these aren't just sort of the old school secretary level appointments and then a stable civil service base. The whole thing is turning over to a greater degree. You know that Political campaign workers are being placed in these agencies, and many of them are coming into the position with significantly worked out priors, and that means that they're not really there to interpret the law. They're making law the way they would like it to be, and you can see this sort of yin and yang just on the contraceptive coverage mandate as an example of that. And I'll stop off and say one point about administrative agencies, our whole explanation or why we should defer to them is that they are like technocrats, right? They have like the scientific knowledge. Congress can't be bothered with the minutiae of these laws. Congress isn't as expert as the experts. But when the claim is a moral one, when it's really the valence of it is about the morality of something, that whole explanation for deference falls apart. And then last point, because I know you want me to end. I was sort of curious, like, hey, how much of this is happening in other kinds of statutes? How many statutes have as provided for in them? And um, so we went and looked across the U.S. code, found a number of examples, and I'll give you one here. And this is my last point. So we regulate federal parks. And in particular, we regulate whether you can hunt in federal parks. Um, And so the background rule in these statutes was to regulate hunting, The president was allowed to describe the sort of scope of those regulations. And then as provided for by the Secretaries of Interior and Agriculture, there could be exemptions. So imagine that we had these lions in these parks, okay? That as provided for structure, after Little Sisters, the case, would allow the Secretaries of Agriculture and Interior to make an, an exemption, a, a, an allowance to the no hunting rule for people, let's say, between 40 and 45, 000, 45 uh, years of age that could pay a $100,000 fee. So here's like, for example, one taker, one person that I think willing to pay that fee because we know this guy loves to hunt, right? And then that takes us right back to where I started which is it's really going to be a question of whether these kinds of concessions would be seen as arbitrary and capricious. And so good luck to the sisters because I think their long saga in fact is not over and I'll stop sharing screen there.
0: Excellent. Thank you so much, Professor Wilson. That was great stuff. Um, I Googled our next panelist to, to research my introduction and the first result was uh, was titled um the tattooed libertarian on the arizona supreme court which i thought was fantastic this is my sort of guy um as i'm sure most of our listeners are aware viewers are aware um the honorable justice clint bullock has been a luminary in the libertarian legal movement for decades he co-founded ij or the institute for justice which is just fantastic um, again, currently he's serving on the Arizona Supreme Court. I, I will note this, um, by my count, he has only published 11 books. Um, so so I guess that pales in comparison to the 13 of his predecessors, but I will add this. Um, evidently he, he has published a, a fiction, a novel, which I thought was fantastic. Um, so without further ado, I, I will... Uh, uh, hand it over to uh, the Honorable Justice Clint Bullock, who will be presenting on The Dimming of Blaine's Legacy.
3: Well, thank you so much for that introduction. I do have number 12 on the way this December, and if you if you do add the fiction novel, which uh, you know, it's a, a lot harder than a nonfiction <laughs> book, in my opinion. Um, you know, we get to 13. Um, first of all, thank you so much uh, to my colleagues on the panel and also especially to the Cato Institute for honoring the the birthday of the most magnificent document uh, in, in history and uh, an enduring constitution, and Cato plays such a central role in uh, ensuring that the neutral principles of the Constitution are, are honored and that, uh, judges who, uh, do not honor those principles are, are held to account. Uh, this case, uh, Espinoza Espinosa versus, uh, Montana Department of Revenue, uh, has a huge backstory. Um, and it really begins well over a century ago at another point in our history when we had, uh, a tremendous amount of anti-immigrant fervor. And uh, that fervor was personified by a uh, uh, a frequent aspirant for the presidency, James G. Blaine, who served as the United States senator from Maine. And Blaine uh, uh, used his fervor uh, to prevent immigrants from sharing in the public uh, the public funds that were available for education, which at the time in the late 19th century, were really not uh, secular schools so much as they were Protestant schools. And the Protestants did not want to share their funding. And so Blaine proposed a national amendment that would prohibit aid or support uh, using public funds for what he called sectarian schools. Today, when we think of the, the word sectarian, we think it is synonymous with religion. Uh, but at the time, sectarian meant something very clear, and that was Catholic, because the immigrants at the time were primarily from uh, Europe and uh, brought not only their Catholic faith, but their Catholic religion, or their Catholic schools as well. Blaine failed in uh, enacting a national amendment, but he was in, incredibly successful in uh, enacting them in state constitutions. Uh, depending on, on what your count is, either 37 or 38 states have Blaine amendments that say some form of the words, no public funds for the aid, support, or benefit of sectarian schools. A number of Western states were required to adopt this language as a condition of admission into the union. Well, fast forward a century later, and the modern school choice movement is starting, Uh, and the question of the constitutionality of vouchers, including religious schools, comes before the courts. There were two species, and and of course, I I was very deeply involved uh, in in the litigation effort to defend these programs during my career at IJ and subsequently at the Goldwater Institute. Uh, But there were two primary focuses of the opponents of school choice. The first was the Establishment Clause in the US Constitution. And the second was an entire bevy of challenges that were made under various provisions of state constitutions, primary among them, the Blaine Amendments. And uh, ultimately we prevailed uh, in year 12 of the modern uh, voucher movement in 2002 on the Establishment Clause issue in a case called Zellman versus Simmons Harris by the resounding vote Of five to four. And in that case, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld school vouchers in Cleveland, and they did so based on two principles, that these programs uh, were based on true private choice, that is, no dollars crossed the threshold of a private school or a religious school unless they were directed there by parents. The other principle was neutrality, and that is that the state was being neutral as between religion and non-religion. So as time goes on, uh, the opponents of school choice do not give up, but they shift the focus to state constitutional provisions. The Blaine Amendments are effective in a number of states in stopping uh, school choice programs, though not in others. Um, and they're also effective in the legislative arena, where a number of opponents of school choice say, you know, we'd l- really love to adopt this program, but we're forbidden by our very own state constitution. So this is a, a significant barrier to school choice that includes religious schools. So the Institute for Justice and other groups began devising legal strategies to actually uh, uh, tame the Blaine amendments. And the idea that they seize upon is that these uh, amendments are not neutral. They are, in fact, uh, anti-religious and can be used to discriminate against religion. So a number of cases raise uh, these arguments, raise these concerns. Justice Thomas, in a concurring opinion uh, in, in one of these cases, talks about the bigoted history of the Blaine amendments and that these uh, amendments should be buried. Um, so we come up uh, to in the year 2017 to the case where this issue seems to be squarely presented, a case called Trinity Lutheran out of Missouri. There, the state of Missouri uh, had a program uh, providing funds for repaving uh, playground uh, surfaces. Uh, Certainly not normally the stuff of U.S. Supreme Court decisions, uh, but nonetheless, this is the case that went up there. And uh, a religious school applied for this grant and was denied solely on the basis of the state's Blaine Amendment, saying, you know, if you were a private non-sectarian school or a public school, you could have access to this grant. Uh, But if you're a religious school, you cannot. Goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Everyone is thinking that the question of of the Blaine Amendment, as applied in a discriminatory manner, is squarely before the court. And school choice opponents are jubilant when the court, by the very unexpected vote of 7-2, to strikes down this discrimination in Missouri. Except that four justices join a footnote. And this is one of the strangest footnotes I've ever seen in the history of American jurisprudence. Four justices say, this case involves express discrimination based on religious identity with regard to playground resurfacing. We do not address religious uses of funding or other forms of discrimination. In other words, an entire Supreme Court decision focusing solely on playground resurfacing. Justice Kennedy, who was one of the justices who joined in that footnote, uh, goes on, of course, to retire, replaced by Justice Kavanaugh, who is a a very strong proponent of uh, religious neutrality in the Establishment Clause context. And another case goes up to the U.S. Supreme Court, Espinoza. This one does squarely involve uh, a school choice program, specifically a tax credit for contributions to scholarship funds. The state of Missouri says uh, enacts this uh, program to provide assistance tax benefits for all schools, religious and non-religious. The Montana Supreme Court uh, says, you know what, we have a Blaine Amendment. You can't include uh, religious schools, uh, but we're going to make this neutral. We're going to strike down the law in its entirety. And uh, so Uh, the Institute for Justice takes this case up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a bit nerve-wracking because, in a sense, the Montana Supreme Court did achieve neutrality, but it did so by abolishing the program in its entirety. This time, on the last day of the normal term of the U.S. Supreme Court, the Supreme Court, by, again, uh, the decisive vote of five to four, uh, ends up striking down the application of the Blaine Amendment to discriminate against religious schools. Basically saying that this is a discrimination based on the religious status of uh, people, parents, and taxpayers who otherwise would have the opportunity to access this benefit. And so the court holds that uh, this is an unconstitutional discrimination. There's a number of concurring and dissenting opinions that my favorite uh, uh, concurring opinion is uh, by Justice Alito. And Alito uh, doesn't think that you should be able to use history to prove discriminatory intent in a law. Uh, but he lost out on that uh, in a previous case, that argument. He was in the dissent on that. And so he says what's good for the goose. Is good for the gander and writes a magnificent concurring opinion, including the use of a cartoon, which I'm not sure I've ever seen in a US Supreme Court opinion before. And certainly Alito would have been the last justice I would expect to put a cartoon in one of his opinions. But it was uh, from the time of the adoption of the Blaine amendments, showing uh, alligators, which are Catholic priests, uh, basically devouring school children who are trying their best to get to uh, public schools. So Alito absolutely devastates uh, the the history of the Plain Amendment. Uh, Four justices say that this is an outrageous decision, a departure uh, from centuries of of American jurisprudence. Two quick points on, on, uh, on, on the importance of the decision. It really is, even though it's a, a, a huge victory for advocates of school choice, it really is a narrow one. And uh, the, the Supreme Court says a state need not subsidize private education. But once a state decides to do so, it cannot disqualify private schools, some private schools, solely because they are religious. So this is an anti-discrimination uh, provision, uh, or holding. It does not strike down Blaine amendments across the board. They remain on the books. If they are used in a discriminatory manner, uh, they are highly suspect. Um, and the other thing is once again, a, a five to four decision, uh, the entire idea of school choice has been extremely contentious in the U S Supreme court. Uh, and so whether the school choice, uh, Supporters or opponents really have the momentum at this point. It's really hard to say it really will depend in future cases on the composition of the US Supreme Court and the fidelity of uh, Justices to the principle of stare decisis
0: Thanks Thank you so much Justice Bolick Um, With that, we we will turn to questions. I would like to remind our viewers to please submit questions either in the comments section of Zoom or via social media. Um, With that, I will actually, I guess I'll I'll, uh, uh, exercise moderator's privilege. And and I've got one for Professor Wilson, whose comment about the administrative state creeping into the culture wars I found alarming. I guess my question in particular, are, are these manifestations of the administrative state getting into uh, these culture wars, do they tend to reflect uh, amorphous, capacious, uh, imprecise, ambiguous a- ambiguous uh, delegations from Congress? I mean, I'm confused about, I'm, I operate in the, the realm of economic regulation. So I'm just confused on what sort of authorities agencies are, are exercising in order to get into the culture war? And and if you could answer that, and also potentially, what do we do about it? I mean, that seems problematic to me the, in, from a number of angles, be it accountability or otherwise.
2: Yeah, so that's a great question, Will. Um, you know, I, I think, look, a lot of this is the fact that the footprint of the administrative state, just how much it reaches into our lives is greater and greater. Um, I don't know that it had to go that way with the ACA. In other words, preventative care services might not have included contraceptives whatsoever. Um, but you know, there'll be people who come into some administrations with particular values. So if your valence around this issue is pro-woman, you know, you could see why a scientific body would just go, "Okay, let's grab every FDA-approved drug and put it on the list." without a thought for the idea that there was a longer history around religious and moral objections, right? And and without a thought for the fact that the only reason the ACA was even enacted was because some pro-life Democrats negotiated an executive order from President Obama saying that this would not be disrupted. And um, you know, concessions specifically in the statute. So in some sense, you know, you see people within the, um, you know, the agencies, I think, maybe trying to carry out, you know, what they see as the mandate, but without a wider lens to the longer history around abortion. So I think they just missed it. And then, you know, as I said um you know, many people will hear this idea of trying to balance the rights of women and religious subjectors as somehow authorizing abortion. That's not my position. But you can see that what the Trump administration tried to do to sort of to undo that first harm was actually sort of refer, referring us back to a longer history and kind of calm place that we've had around abortion. So I think To some extent, it's like a nuclear arms race. Once one team gets out with something, you're going to see the other guy do that, and you're just going to see it continually going back and forth. Um, Aaron Nielsen has written an interesting piece. He's a professor at BYU about sticky regulation. But basically, in the article that I've done, I said, you know, we may want to think about whether there should be a standing down from this tit-for-tat process. Otherwise, we're just going to be, we're
0: going to have whiplash from administration to administration. You're here, um, an that, that, that escalating arms race. Well, not comforting. <laughs> for, for Professor Whittington, and the question is, under the reasoning of either the Kagan or Thomas opinions, could a state fine its U.S. senators for voting a certain way in the Senate, or can the reasoning of this case be cabined to apply only to, to presidential electors?
1: Uh, so I think particularly under uh, the Thomas uh, concurrence, uh, you can imagine um, space for states potentially to uh, fine uh, senators uh, for uh, voting in particular ways. Since Thomas regards this as part of the reserve power um, uh, and doesn't uh, rely upon any particular text of the U.S. Constitution itself. It's not clear that, that there's a good grounding in the text of the Constitution that would preclude the idea um, that under the reserve powers of the states, they could um, uh, impose those kind of sanctions under Thomas's theory. Um, under Kagan's theory, I think it's a little trickier. Um, Kagan relies heavily on uh, the text of the Constitution that specifies um, the manner in which uh, presidential electors are appointed and, and attaching conditions to the manner of their appointment—that um, under the uh, uh, 1787 version of uh, the appointment of U.S. senators, uh, you can imagine very easily being extended to U.S. senators. Um, now, with an amended version where senators are popularly elected, I think it's much trickier um, to imagine uh, that's that's the case. And so, I think it'd be relatively easy for. Um, uh, the court under Kagan's logic to one to distinguish between uh, senators um, and, and uh, presidential electors uh, in, in particular. Um, and, and it's one virtue potentially of having that sort of specific textual hook that Kagan wants to rely on that doesn't open the door um, to quite the expansiveness um, of, of state action um, that the Thomas concurrence potentially does.
0: Thanks. Excellent. Our next question, I believe is for um, Justice Bullock. It is for my colleague, Ilya Shapiro and I'll read it uh, verbatim. I've been saying that Espinoza is the last legal obstacle to school choice programs. Am I right? Oh, I believe you're on mute.
3: Sorry, I uh, thought I had unmuted. Uh, in my experience, Ilya Shapiro is never wrong, so I need to find um, a different word to describe uh, <laughs> the, uh, the statement that he made there. Um, on, uh, the answer is, is uh, that there are other obstacles uh, to school choice programs. For example, at least two states, Florida and Colorado, have struck down programs under different provisions Of their state constitutions in Florida, it was the uniformity clause, which guarantees a uniform public education, and the Florida Supreme Court ruled that anything that really was a a different form of education from the public system uh, was uh, was unconstitutional. I don't know whether uh, uh, whether that. Uh, Decision has continuing vitality, but it did lead to the invalidation of the voucher program there. And in Colorado, uh, there was a local uh, school voucher program in Douglas County that was struck down under a a provision that only six states have that uh, requires uh, 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 that uh, forbids uh, this type of, of local program. Um, and the thing about these provisions, unlike the Blaine Amendment, which uh, lent itself to uh, a, a case going up to the U.S. Supreme Court because there was the federal constitutional issue of, of uh, whether these programs were permissible under the Free Exercise Clause, those kinds of decisions based on state constitutional provisions that are not themselves uh, problematic under the U.S. Constitution, they can't be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. So in those instances, you have, um, uh, you have constitutional obstacles that are, uh, that are not reviewable by, by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, my former nemesis, Robert Channon, who was the uh, general counsel of the National Education Association, and we um, argued these cases against each other so frequently that I could not only uh, uh, recite his argument. I could do it in his voice. Um, he he called this his bag of tricks. He said uh, constitutional provisions and state constitutions are are replete with opportunities uh, to challenge school choice programs and and even charter programs for that matter. Uh, and I have to say, he was absolutely right.
0: Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, I- as follows does the argument that winner take take all rules are unconstitutional have any traction given judge wins dissent in south carolina uh, in south carolina case in the south carolina case that went to the fourth circuit did was that uh, did that come through it, it, it alerted me that my internet was a bit unstable there did you hear that keith oh i, I missed part of it you missed all right i will re- repeat the question i'm sorry about that all right it was um, again from Robert Fitzpatrick. It was Does the argument that winner takes all rules are unconstitutional have any traction given Judge Wynn's dissent in the South Carolina case that went to the Fourth Circuit?
1: Right, Um, um, so that really turns on a a different kind of constitutional argument than what the US Supreme Court was looking at in the faithless electors um, case. It turns on claims about um, how the voting rights cases under the Equal Protections Clause um, play out in the specific context of the Electoral um, College. I don't think there's gonna be any direct effect um, between what the court did uh, with faithless electors and the implications uh, for thinking about uh, the winner-take-all rules um, uh, relative to the 14th Amendment, at least. Um, I would not be surprised if we don't see more litigation making this kind of argument, though, about um, uh, potential implication of uh, the Equal Protection Clause for how the Electoral College is structured, and, and particularly this, tr- this choice by the states. Um, you can't imagine that the 14th Amendment um, makes the Electoral College, per se, um, unconstitutional, but states... Have chosen um, how to delegate how to uh, delegate um, presidential electors um, and how to allocate them out to candidates and and most states have chosen um, to allocate them as a single unit. Um, they've done this through through from very early in American history um, because it gives states more weight in the process if so they allocate all of their um, uh, presidential electors to a single winning uh, candidate. Um, but modern uh, equal protection uh, jurisprudence, as it applies to voting rights context. Um, I think does raise some genuine questions. Um, so far, courts haven't um, bought into that, um, but, but the argument that was played out in the dissent in that circuit court case, um, I expect to hear uh, played out in other cases in the future.
0: Excellent, thank you very much. Um, our next question is for Professor Wilson. Um, this question is from Feminists for Liberty, and it is. What can we do to free debates about reproductive health from the culture war and allow people to make their own individual choices?
2: Well, uh, that would require that the government don't go around paying for so much stuff because, you know, when you're paying with your own money, that's a whole thing. Um, so that's one piece. But let's just take the world where we find it, where it does, right? It, for Medicaid, it it pays for, you know, Medicare for older folks and certain categorically eligible people, pays for all kinds of stuff. In that world, I think we need to be grooving to where Obama was. We need to be trying to vindicate competing rights. This wasn't that complicated. We didn't have to put four drugs on the list that by their own labels said that they acted in a way that would be seen as a abortifacient by religious objectors when we have had a detente around this since 1973 in Roe v. Wade. What we could have done um, and what a number of prominent religious liberty advocates urged the Obama administration to do, people who were on the Obama administration's own faith council, was to say that they should do an expansion of Title X I mean, let's be honest about this too, and I appreciate the real feminist perspective. Lots of women need to be able to control their reproduction. Okay, it affects their life chances. If they have a child, for example, they're already struggling to keep well, and then they're pregnant with another, this is a problem, right? If they're raped, this is a problem. If, if um, you know, they want simply to control the size of their family, this is a problem. So I think we need to um, think really hard about the humanity of these questions and try to find ways where we can recognize needs that people honestly have, but not ask people who cannot simply do that thing to do it. We've had a live and let live around abortion for a long time, it served us well. What we should have done was expand the Title 10, um, but you know, what I hear from inside of the Obama administration is they thought that would just light off a culture war. Um, And ironically, the way they went around it a, a different way, lit off a bigger one, I think.
0: Thank you. Yeah, wonderful. I think we've got time for one more question. This one is directed to Justice Bolick. It is from Roy Miller. And the question is, how significant is the court's apparent reluctance to expressly overrule the Blaine Amendments?
3: Well, uh, Roy, you could have just called me up and asked me this question, but uh, no, seriously, um, I don't think that question really was before uh, the Supreme Court to actually say Blaine, you can't have a Blaine Amendment. Um, And so uh, the court was naturally reluctant to to go that far. But really, when you think about it, the, the only time a Blaine Amendment is going to present constitutional difficulties is uh, when it is used to uh, thwart a religious choice. And so um, I think that if, uh, uh, if the Blaine Amendment is a fanged creature. Uh, The fangs have been removed from the Blaine amendments and and I don't know what continuing vitality they have uh, in other contexts but uh, the court did not did not erase them and I think that the court perceived uh, that
0: it really did not need to erase them. Let's see we've got five minutes left that might be enough time for one last question. Um, Actually again to you Justice Bolick And if you could please keep the answer short in light of our five minutes remaining. Um, And this is from Nicholas Little. Why is the alleged anti-Catholicism of no-aid clauses relevant to a case regarding a state constitution adopted in 1972? Was Montana religiously discriminatory in 1972? Do we presume bigotry on the part of the Constitutional Convention?
3: So I'm so glad that that question uh, was asked live. I don't think the majority um, hitched the unconstitutional, oh my gosh, why can't I say one of my favorite words, unconstitutionality of the Blaine Amendment uh, to the bigoted history. If it did, it would be difficult. For example, my own court in a case uh, that I argued before it said that uh, its amendment is not a Blaine Amendment and doesn't have uh, bigoted history. So then Espinoza wouldn't apply uh, to the Arizona Constitution. Um, so it really is grounded in the notion of neutrality. The court mentions it. It mentions in passing that basically the 72 legislature readopted what had a bigoted history, uh, but it really was Justice Alito who went after it in a big way. And frankly, I think he did that not so much that he felt that it was central, quite the contrary. He says it's, it shouldn't be central to the constitutional question, but really to hoist his colleagues on their own petard. He really loves to do that. I think that he has uh, succeeded Scalia as, uh, as probably the greatest dissenter on the court right now, certainly the most sarcastic one. And in this instance, uh, he did not have to dissent in order to get uh, some serious snarkiness out.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Excellent response. Um, well, I, th- I think we'll wrap it up at that point. Um, we've only got three minutes remaining. Um, I would like to thank our panelists. That was great. That was a wonderful presentation by everybody and a great Q and A. And for our viewers, I I think it's a 15 minute break before our next panel. Um, And with that, um, we'll conclude this one.